0: This morning we are back into our sermon series on the book of Romans. We're calling the Gospel of God. And we are in a text this morning that if you read what most commentators or Bible scholars write, they will tell you this is the very heart of Paul's letter. And indeed it seems it is. These verses drip with the Gospel. You cannot avoid seeing the beauty of Christ's work in Paul's words here in Romans 3, verses 21 to 31. That said, as you can imagine, we could park here for a long time. There is much that God reveals to us regarding his work as Father through the Son, Jesus Christ, and redeeming us, making us his people. Uh, of course, though, we don't have the time for that, so do forgive me if we don't get into detail in your favorite part of this text as it is so familiar to many who are part of God's people who are in the church. Now let us hear God's Word again in Romans 3, verses 21 to 31. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is He not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by faith? By no means. On the contrary, We uphold the law. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, again, we praise you and thank you for your word and ask now that your spirit would attend to its proclamation, that you would open our hearts and minds and let the good news of the gospel work itself deeply into us so that we might believe and in believing, show it forth to a world who walks in darkness and is in desperate need of hearing this light of the truth. We ask ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, we in this world, we are certainly slaves to performance. We live in a performance-driven world. There's always somebody or someone that we're trying to please, someone that we're trying to make happy, to, to whom we wish to bring joy. as those of us who are married as husbands, we, we try to make our wives happy. And I emphasize try. No, it's a joke. Wives try to make their husbands happy. Children try to please their parents. Parents try to please their children. We perform for our bosses and our teachers and our friends and our neighbors and ourselves. And we try to perform for God. We want to be the best possible version of ourselves that we think we can be. But there is a real problem with living this performance-driven life. And it's not that it is wrong to make others happy. No, not at all. In fact, that is the good and the peaceable and right thing to do. We ought to want to please others, to bring joy into their lives, and we ought to want to please God. That is a worshipful, worshipful thing to do. In fact, that is what we were created to do, to bring good pleasure to God. God's own testimony of his creation is that it was very good. It gave him delight. It gave him pleasure. He was pleased in it. But the problem with a performance-driven life is that what you do for others, for yourself, for God, it's never good enough. We never measure up to the standards that we set for ourselves. And the truth of this shows in the guilt and the shame and the sorrow and the unhappiness that so many people in this world carry with them and yet despite that reality people are still driven by performance especially when it comes to God again it is good and right to want to please God in your life but the truth of this that we have seen here in Romans is that we cannot please God in our own strength with our own effort the apostle Paul has shown us again and again in this letter to the Romans that this is absolutely true. We cannot please God. We cannot earn His favor. We cannot make Him smile upon us by the things we do. He said earlier in Romans 3, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. They have all become worthless. No one does good, not even one, all have become worthless, he says. They, they, they lack the ability to please God in themselves by nature because all have sinned. All have broken God's law. That's what he said back in Romans 1, verse 18. For this reason, for our sin, the wrath of God is now revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And is that term unrighteousness that characterizes the human race. We, by nature, are unrighteous. We lack the righteousness we need to please God. We don't possess it. In fact, in our unrighteousness, Paul also says in Romans 1, we suppress the truth, we suppress the knowledge of God. And so the frown of God is upon this world because of their unrighteousness. And yet, despite that, people go about trying to earn his favor. And oh, it is so exhausting because you're trying to do something you cannot do. It is sheer madness. But Paul's words this morning shine a bright and burning ray of heaven's glorious light into the madness of this unrighteous world. And he does it with two little words. But now, after laying out the dark truth that all humanity has fallen and enslaved in sin and the evil of their own unrighteous hearts, after making it clear that you cannot earn your own unrighteousness as required by God's law, After saying all that, Paul answers it with, but now. Two little powerful words of hope because they are followed by the answer to our problem with our own unrighteousness and this burden of personal performance that we carry with us. In fact, we could summarize these verses, this text, with this. But now, despite our unrighteousness, but now, God has provided the righteousness that we need to please Him so that we can know the joy of His presence forever. And there are three things about this righteousness that God provides that we're going to look at in this text this morning. I'll give them to you and then we'll jump in. Number one, this righteousness that God provides for you in the gospel is a righteousness that is revealed rather than hidden. Number two, it is a righteousness that is received by faith rather than earned. And finally, it is a righteousness that restores rather than divides. So first of all, a righteousness that is revealed rather than hidden. Again, verse 21, Paul says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And of course, this this theme of the righteousness of God is dominant in the book of Romans. It's one of the things that comes up again and again. Way back in chapter 1, Paul wrote, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then he says, For in it is the righteousness of God. In it, the righteousness of God is Revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so we must ask the question: Then, what is this righteousness of God? A lot of times, when you hear that term, you might be tempted to think of it as similar to His holiness, His purity. Well, it it isn't His holiness that is distinct from His righteousness. These are two separate particular qualities of God. Righteousness has several sides to it. First of all, righteousness speaks of God's justice. In fact, we see that back in Romans 1 regarding God's judgment upon sin. It is called his righteous decree. It is his right judgment upon human sinfulness. Secondly, the righteousness of God pertains to his covenant faithfulness. We see that again in Romans, in Romans 3, verses 3 through 9. So it is God's right remembering of his promises as he fulfills them in Christ. And a third side of God's righteousness. That we see here is his saving righteousness, that is the right standing with God that we need, that he gives us in Christ. It is a right relationship, a relationship that does please him so that his blessing, his favor may fall upon us. And this side of righteousness really has a legal quality to it. It is what is legally required of, of one if they are to know the glory of God, the glory of His presence as we were created and designed to know. And Paul says that is the righteousness that is now manifested. This is what is revealed in a very public way. God has made it so clear That it is not hard to find. Notice Paul doesn't say that the righteousness of God is being manifested. He speaks of it as something that has already been done. It is something God has completed. It is done. It is fulfilled. It's already there. God has done something to make this righteousness known. To provide it for you. He did something big, something that the entire world can look at. What did he do? Well, he stepped himself into the darkness of this unrighteous world in the person of the Son, as Christ was made flesh and dwelt among us. And then he died, bearing the penalty of sin, so that we might be saved from it. And then he rose. The third day, showing that death was defeated forever. That is the clear revelation of God's righteousness, the person of Christ. Furthermore, the righteousness of God, says Paul here, has been manifested apart from the law. In fact, he wants us to remember that. He's emphasizing that it has been manifested apart from the law. That is huge. That's what makes the but now so significant. Because the law of God does preach the righteousness of God. It shows us his justice. It shows us that he is absolutely right in all he does. And so many people think that well through the law of God then is this road to becoming righteous, to being right in a right standing with God. That's impossible. But that is the performance mentality. Do this thing and don't do this thing and God will be happy with you. God will be pleased with you. Obey the Ten Commandments. Go to church. Be baptized. Take uh, the Lord's Supper. Learn the catechisms of the church. All good things to do. All things that we should do. All things I would argue that are actually necessary things in life. But none of them earn the right standing with God. They do not put you into a right relationship with God. They do not, to use the words Paul uses here, justify you. And that's because God's law doesn't have the power to do what it demands. What does it demand? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, in strength, not just partially, but with all of who you are. Now, even if you could love God with 99% of all your heart, that's still not all of it, is it? It would not be enough. And there is nobody, not one of us, who can even come close to the 99%. As Paul wrote in verse 20 of Romans 3, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You see, the law does reveal God's perfect righteousness, but in doing so, it shows us that we are unrighteous. With it comes the knowledge of sin. And so it shows us then that our performance life just doesn't measure up. It can't achieve what we want it to achieve. It can't remove the stain of sin. It can't give us the peace and hope that this world so desperately needs. The law only tells us, yeah, that's what you need. But it doesn't tell you how to achieve it. In fact, it is powerless to give you the ability to do it because you cannot keep God's perfect law. But now, says Paul, apart from that law, that exposes your sin, God has manifested, He has provided His righteousness. It's not a new righteousness. In fact, He says in verse 21, the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, bears witness to the saving righteousness of God. God's promises of salvation are expressions of His covenant love and mercy running throughout all of the Scriptures going back to Genesis And it's been revealed clearly that God will provide this righteousness for his people. The law isn't what saves you, but it is what points you to he who does. You see, Jesus Christ is the full revelation of God's righteousness. He is the one that makes a person right with God which brings us to the second aspect of this righteousness of God that God provides. So it's a righteousness that is revealed, it is clear, it has been spoken through God's work in history and in time as recorded in the scriptures. And secondly, it is a righteousness then that must be received by faith alone rather than earned. So what is faith in Jesus? Well, course, our catechism, the shorter catechism answers that well. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace. It means it's a gift of God whereby we receive and we rest upon him alone for salvation as he has offered to us in the gospel. You see, since we can't keep the law and earn righteousness, the only way you can get it then is if it is provided to you by the grace of God, and thus received by faith alone. That is the only way. There is no other. The Apostle Paul emphasizes the importance and the necessity of faith in Christ again and again in his verses. Do you see that? He says, verse 22, God is the one who reveals a saving righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Verse 25, we receive the saving righteousness of God By faith. Verse 26, God is just and the justifier of all those that have faith in Christ. Verse 27, Paul speaks of the law of faith. Verse 28, a person is justified by faith. And verse 30, God justifies both Jews and Gentiles alike by faith. Verse 31, we don't destroy the law, but we uphold it. How? By faith and so the righteousness must be received by faith why well because verse 23 which is simply a summary of what Paul has been saying for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God all have sinned all oh, there's no exceptions that means that uh, nobody has the ability to earn the saving righteousness. Therefore, all must have faith if they hope to have it. What does it mean, though, to fall short of God's glory? This is a very familiar verse. No doubt many of us have it memorized. Have you ever stopped to wonder, what does it mean to actually fall short of God's glory? Well, there are are two things I think Paul has in mind here. First, there is the loss of God's glory that Adam experienced through the fall. So the glory of God in the Bible, you see, is associated always with the presence of God. If you're in God's presence, it's described as being his glory. It is glorious. It is wonderful. And to be in the presence of God, to experience his glory, is also associated with Life, life everlasting. And so when Adam sinned and the curse of death came upon him, what also happened? He lost the glory of God. He fell short of the glory of God. He was driven from the garden to show that there was now a separation between him and God in all of his glory. And Adam, being the representative of all humanity then... uh, passes that on to all of us. All, as Paul says, have fallen short of God's glory. All are separated from God's presence. They they lack His blessing because you receive that blessing when you know Him, when you are in His presence. That idea is furthered in Scripture. Whenever you see Israel as a people and a nation disobeying God, worshiping false gods, going after idols... And the scriptures speak that when God judges them, that his glory is removed. His presence, his his dwelling is no longer with them as their God and they as his people. For example, if you go to 1 Samuel chapter 4, we're given this historical account of the fate of a high priest named Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Now, Eli was a godly man. But his sons were not. They led the people astray. They defiled the ceremonial worship that God had prescribed for his people. They committed immorality with women who were dedicated to serve in the tabernacle. In the tabernacle. And for their disobedience and the disobedience of the people, God sends the Philistines to bring judgment upon his people through war and particularly upon the house of Eli. So Hophni and Phinehas, though, they bring out the Ark of the Covenant. That was where the glory of the of God dwelt with his people above the Ark of the Covenant. And they brought that out, thinking that the Lord would go with them into battle. But during the battle, they are both killed, Phinehas and Hophni, and the Ark is captured by the Philistines and carried away. And when the messengers from the battle, run back to Eli to tell him what happened. He, in horror and shock, falls from his seat, his neck is broken, and he dies that very same day. Now Phineas had a wife, and she gave birth to a son. After hearing all of this tragedy that had fallen upon her family and upon God's people, and the, the capture of the ark And she names that son Ichabod, which means the glory is departed. Because the Ark of the Covenant, where God's glory dwelt, was no longer with His people. All have fallen short of God's glory. God's glory has departed from them. That is the natural state of humanity. There's a second aspect of falling short of God's glory I think that Paul has in mind. It harkens back to chapter 1 of Romans where humanity is said to have failed to honor God and to give Him thanks. That is to say, they have failed to glorify Him. So humanity then is characterized not by the righteousness of God, but by unrighteousness. And for that the glory of God has departed. And that is why you cannot hope to earn this righteousness. You don't have that ability. But thanks be to God, He does and He did. He revealed it and He provided it and we receive it by faith alone. And when we do, It leads us to the third and final thing we see about the righteousness of God here in this text. You see, when you receive God's provided righteousness by faith rather than trying to earn it, you receive a righteousness which restores that which was lost rather than dividing you further from God. You see, sin is what keeps people from knowing and enjoying God and His blessings. It's what divides us even as humans. It's why we hurt each other and sin against each other because we possess this unrighteous, sinful heart. But it is in the gospel that that restoration with God takes place and thus restoration with each other. You see, our greatest need in life is to have the restoration of that which was lost. This righteousness that we need to have to be in God's presence. We need to be restored back to God, no longer separated from him. And so throughout this text, we're given gracious benefit after gracious benefit of the gospel. Grace seeps out of every word and speaks truth for all people. It doesn't matter who you are, Jew or Gentile, as Paul says, that through faith you are restored back to your creator, back to God, and thus you can be restored back to each other. Much can be said here about this restoration of God's saving righteousness. I want us to zero in on three particular aspects, though, of the gospel of Christ. And they're all big words. You've heard them before. I think it's good for us to consider them justification, redemption, and propitiation. And they all sound like big theological words, and they are. But they are far from just being boring, churchy language. Neither are these words merely abstract, theoretical ideas about theology of what Christ does for sinners. They are real, intimate, personal realities in the life of all who believe. So if you know Christ, this is who you are. You are justified. You are redeemed because Christ is your propitiation. These are important. This is what makes you a Christian. So first of all, justification. Verses 23 through 24. Again, Paul says, all of sin fall short of the glory of God and are justified (coughs) by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, perhaps you've heard justification defined as, just as I have not sinned. I heard that growing up. That is not what justification is. It's catchy. I appreciate what they're trying to get at. But that's not what justification is. Justification is a judicial vindication. It is the rendering of a favorable verdict for you. It is declaring you to be in a right relationship now with God, despite the fact that you broke his law. So it's something that God does through Christ for you. It's a verdict. It's saying, You are justified in my sight. You are now in a right relationship with me. You can dwell with me forever. I will fellowship with you. I will be your God. You will be my child. In other words, justification is completely a gift of God's grace. That's what Paul says. In verse 26, he he emphasizes it again when he calls God the justifier. It is God who declares those who have faith in Christ to be made right, to be justified before Him. And that isn't ignoring sin. That is saying, despite your sin, because of what Jesus has done, I will declare you to be justified in my sight. And it takes the work of Christ for that to happen, a work that Paul describes here as redemption. So, what is redemption? Well, it has to do with liberation and deliverance from something that enslaves. Now, to Paul's Jewish readers, they no doubt immediately thought of the work uh, God's historical work of delivering them as a nation, as a people, from the bondage, the slavery of Egypt. In the Old Testament, that, that work is often portrayed as God's redemptive work. They would have also had in mind the exile. For when Israel continued to sin against God, he drove them into exile. But later they returned. That that return is portrayed as a second exodus. And again, the prophets speak of it as a form of redemption of God liberating and delivering His people and restoring them then back to the land, back to the land of promise, the land where they would dwell with God and know Him. It's interesting though, when you look at the exile in the Old Testament, it becomes an image of humanity's bondage to sin. And the consequent death and curse and judgment of God that comes because of that sin. So what we see in Israel's history is again this idea of separation, of falling short of God's glory, of being separated Apart from him, the absence of God's presence. Remember, Israel as a nation was promised this land. And that land was was like the Garden of Eden. It was to be the place where God would dwell with his people. So when they were in bondage in Egypt or when they were exiled in Babylon... It was a picture of being cut off, alienated from God. It took a gracious act of redemption, liberation, deliverance to restore them back to that land, back to God's presence. And both the exodus and the return from exile then preached to us the greater redemption, the redemption from both sin and death. Because the world for so long sat in the dark bondage of sin, slaves to sin. Until one night, born in that little village called Bethlehem, the city of David, is born Jesus, who is Emmanuel, God with us, the Redeemer who came to liberate, to set His people free, to deliver them from their sins. That's what redemption is. It is liberation from everything that keeps us away from God and away from His blessing and keeps us chained to His judgment and to the curse. But now those chains through redemption are broken and we are restored back to our God. And that redemption requires a price. What is that price? It is the propitiation of Christ. That's the third word Paul speaks of here when speaking of Christ's work and how God provides us this righteousness that we need. You can follow Paul's train of thought rather easily. You see that God justifies people, declaring them to be a right standing with him, through redemption, through the redemption of Christ Jesus. And then he says in verse 25, it is Jesus who was put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So what is a propitiation? Well, in its most simple understanding, it does speak of satisfaction. In this case, the satisfaction of God's wrath against sin. Remember, God cannot just forget sin. He can't just overlook it. It must be paid for. That wouldn't be just nor righteous to ignore it. The penalty that sin demands must be satisfied. A payment must be made. And Jesus made that satisfaction, paid that payment with his own blood. His death appeased the holy demand of God's law as it called for our judgment, our eternal death, an eternity of separation from God, utter loneliness and isolation forever and ever. He appeased all of that. He satisfied all of that. And because of that, God now looks on the believing sinner and says, yes, yes. The demands of the law, they're satisfied. You are redeemed. You are justified in my sights. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And that is what Paul means as he says that Jesus was put forth by God as our propitiation. To show, verse 26, His righteousness at the present time. So that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God's justice is upheld in Christ being a propitiation. Because his law and the the judgment it deserves is being satisfied. It's being met in Christ. So God is just. And because it is satisfied, God can now be the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. That is what Christ's propitiatory work does. But there's another aspect of Christ being a propitiation that I want to close with because it is so wonderful to consider. Now, Chad, when he's preached through Ruth, has given us some good Hebrew lessons. I'm going to give you a little Greek lesson. (laughs) The Greek word that is translated propitiation in the New Testament is Ilisterion. It is the same word... That is used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to describe the mercy seat. What's the mercy seat? Well, it's simply the cover, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. Contained within the Ark, of course, were the stone tablets of the law that God gave Moses at Sinai. And so you had this mercy seat between the people and God's law. And upon that mercy seat, the presence of God dwelt between the two cherubim that were formed there in the holiest place in the temple. Also during the sacrifice of the atonement, the blood of that sacrifice was sprinkled upon the mercy seat to atone for the sins of of the people. So you have the the mercy of God covering the holy demands of the law of God as he dwells with his people on that mercy seat and as the blood of the atonement is provided, sacrifice offered up, he shows them mercy. Now go back to what Paul says. God put forth Jesus to be the propitiation for the sins of His people, for those who believe. Jesus, the propitiation, the mercy seat, covers the demands of the law for you. And Jesus has come to dwell amongst us, restoring us then to the presence of God. And Jesus shed His own blood as an atoning sacrifice for your sin So that you might be made right with God. You see, Jesus is our justification, and Jesus is our Redeemer, and Jesus is our propitiation. He is the revealed righteousness of God, He is the righteousness that we receive by faith, and He is the righteousness that restores us back to God. It's not your performance. It was never meant to be, nor could it be. It is all done by the gracious saving God who has gifted us His own Son. And all that is left to do is simply to receive Him in faith. So go to Christ. Do not be burdened by your own performance, but go to Christ and know the righteousness that God has provided you so that you might know him and be blessed both now and for all eternity. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We're thankful for this truth, the gospel, that you have provided us the righteousness we need to be restored to you. And it is done through completely through the work of Christ. Continue to impress this truth upon us. May we not forget it. May we remember it as we go forth from this place. That when our sin tells us we are not good enough, we would agree and say, yes, that is right. But there is one who is, and his name is Jesus. And it is him that I rest alone. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.